privilege to introduce you to our special guests tonight. First, Ajahn Pasano, who some of you may already know. He is the co-abbot of Abayagiri Monastery in Mendocino County. And he has brought with him a special guest, Ajahn Rama, Ajahn Brahm, <laughs> known as Ajahn Brahm. He was born in England. He got a degree in theoretical physics from Cambridge University, and a year later went to Thailand and ordained as a monk. And he studied primarily in the tradition, the Thai forest tradition of the Venerable Ajahn Chah. And he now leads, uh, is the abbot of a monastery that he helped to establish in Western Australia. He's here in the United States on a book tour, and uh, we are really happy to have him here to uh, offer his words of wisdom. Welcome. Okay, first of all, um, can everyone hear me in the back? If you can hear me, put your hand up. Great, okay, good. My name is Ajahn Brahm. Just to remember my name very easily, some years ago I was teaching a class in Buddhism at a high school for girls in Perth, Western Australia. The girls were aged around 13 or 14, around that very cheeky age because the day afterwards I saw some of those girls in the streets of my city of Perth. They approached me and said, Hello, you gave a talk at our school yesterday. And I said, I'm so flattered you can remember me. They said, I will never forget you. How can you ever forget a monk called Ajahn Brah? <laughs> and I said, there's an M on the end. But that's a good way to remember my name. <laughs> a piece of woman's underwear with an M on the end. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing because it's important when you're meditating to have fun. Joy is important in the path of meditation. One of the sayings of the Buddha is Sukhinoti Tang Samadhyati from happiness. So the mind easily gets into meditation. So I'm just going to say a few things about some of my meditation teachings which should be able to complement what you're doing here and then I'm going to have some questions and answers. But first of all, one of the first things you do in meditation is look at your posture. And I think when I open my eyes that many of you are in the wrong posture. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your legs are doing. It can be all over the place as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't matter where you put your hands. Even if your back may be slumped over, the most important part of your posture is the shape of your mouth. Make sure the corners are turned upwards and you smile when you're meditating. And that is the most important part of your posture. <laughs> I mention that because if you're ever having a hard time when you're meditating in this room, just pay attention to what your mouth is doing. If you just even fake a smile, just make it smile, you'll find straight away that will change the psychology of your mind. You'll be a little bit happier, be looking for happiness, you'll be looking for the positive quality in the mind at that moment. And that will allow you to get more peace and more stillness. It will allow you to develop what we call contentment. 
There's a story which is in the book which I'm supposed to be trying to flog in this joint. <laughs> which is called... There's so many some of the prison stories. Because it's like many monks, we spent a lot of time teaching in prisons, but when I first started teaching in prisons in Australia, I made sure I made, kept a record of the number of hours I spent inside jails in voluntary work to use as credit if one day I got sentenced to any period inside. <laughs> it was a very smart thing to do. But the first time I went to teach in jail, it was in a high-security prison. And I was so impressed that about, out of a prison population of about 108, about 95 prisoners turned up for my talk. Amazing, Ni about 90% participation rate. I was so inspired that so many of these so-called you know, prisoners, convicts, really wanted to do something with their lives, to learn meditation, I decided to give the best possible talk I could. However, after five minutes of my talk on meditation, a prisoner stood up, interrupted my talk to ask a question. He was a very big prisoner with many scars on. When anyone that big interrupts you, you always say, yes, what do you want? <laughs> Actually, he later became a great friend, he was a marvellous man. He asked, on behalf of all the other prisoners, he was one of the leaders in the jail, he asked, on behalf of everyone there, the following question. He said, is it really true that through meditation you can learn how to fly through the air? <laughs> and then I realised why so many prisoners had come to my class. <laughs> You can't make up these stories, they're true. <laughs> and so what I told him, it takes many, 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 many years, and only a very few gifted meditators could learn how to levitate. The next time I went, there were only three turned up for my talk. <laughs> <laughs> but on this particular story, which is not just as a joke, it's a funny ending, but it also has a profound meaning, which will help you, not only in your life, but in this meditation retreat. One of my monks, it was Venal Covido, he was uh, teaching in one of the jails, and after teaching for quite a few weeks, the prisoners said, can you stay back a bit longer, because we have some tea for you, and we'd like to get you to know you. So he stayed on a bit longer while they served him tea, and they started to ask him, especially about his life in a forest monastery. What's it like being a monk of the Thai forest tradition, of Ajahn Chah's tradition in Australia? So he told them, he said, well, we get up at four o'clock in the morning, but it's optional in my monastery. You can always get up earlier if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> this is well practiced, I've said this story many times. <laughs> and then what do you do? Can you watch the midnight movie? So no, there's no TVs in our monastery. You've just got to meditate on the hard concrete floor. Oh, that's a bit rough. But then I suppose you have a breakfast. Sometimes there's no breakfast, sometimes there is. When there is, it's just one choice, no choice at all. That's a bit rough, said the prisoners, but then what do you do? Can you go and sort of play sport or something? No, you've got to work in the mornings. And actually, in our monasteries, we work very hard. 
even as an abbot, you know, as Ajahn Prasna knows, we still have to work hard. I remember one occasion we were mixing concrete and I was just so dirty that I, when I went to go and get changed before the meal, this Sri Lankan lady was coming. She was dressed in a very beautiful sari. She was obviously a very reasonably wealthy woman. And I, we crossed past. She asked me, where's the abbot? And I said, well, if you go up into that room over there, he'll be there in ten minutes. <laughs> So I quickly washed and changed, went to see her, gave her a nice talk on the Dharma. Just before she left, she said, this is a wonderful monastery, I'm very impressed with your t talk, but if you don't mind me mentioning one thing, some of your monks are very ill-dressed. There's one monk I missed. <laughs> it was very dirty. I said, I'll talk to him, madam, I'll talk to him. <laughs> but we work very hard. But then we eventually have our lunch. But as you know, if you've been to Ajahn Pasna's monastery, we eat everything out of one bowl. And so sometimes the custard goes on a spaghetti. <laughs> sometimes the ice cream melts into the curry. <laughs> and the prisoner said, even in jail they give you a tray with separate compartments. <laughs> it's terrible. But what do you do after lunch? Can you sort of play sport, have a game of soccer or tennis or football? No, more meditation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Until what time? Can you, you know, listen to some music? Or sort of play a guitar or whatever? No, it's meditation all evening. My goodness, that must be really rough meditating until dinner. Dinner, he said? We don't have dinner in the monastery. <laughs> what? <laughs> even, in, even in solitary they give you a meal in the evening. And what do you do later on then, in the evening? Can you play cards, a game of poker? No, nothing. More med Oh, not more meditation. <laughs> but what time do you go to bed? Maybe 10, 11 o'clock, where we sleep on the floor. On the floor! <laughs> Even in the worst security jails, you get a cot to sleep in. And so we told him just what, how austere a forest monastery is. And one of the prisoners, actually all the prisoners, were just so upset that their friend who they came to like was leave, living in such an ascetic monastery that one of them forgot where they were and said, that's terrible in your monastery, why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? <laughs> and he had a point. <laughs> In modern jails, it's much more comfortable in a, and than in a forest monastery. So why is it that there's a waiting list? In most forest in Ajahn Pasna's monastery there's a waiting list, in my monastery there's a waiting list. Why is there a waiting list for, to get into a monastery, while there's a waiting list to get out of a prison? <laughs> what's the difference between a monastery and a prison? Or rather, what's the difference between being in a prison and being free? Because when I heard that story, I often thought about it, and I realized that a prison is any place you don't want to be. If you're in a relationship where you're not happy, your relationship is a prison for you, and it feels that way. If you're in a job you hate, your profession is a prison. If you're in a retreat you don't like, <laughs> Spirit Rock is like St. Quinton. 
And if you're in a body, or let's say in a meditation, you're having a difficult time, if you don't want to be here, your sitting is a prison for you. So how do you become free? You don't need to change your partner or your job. You don't need to leave this uh, wonderful meditation center, nor do you need even to change your mind object with meditating. The way to be free, as we know from our forest monasteries, which are very austere, is wanting to be here. If you are content with your partner, you want to be there, you feel free. You're content with your job, you have freedom. And if you're happy in this, listening to this talk, in this beautiful room, in Spirit Rock Meditation Center, you feel all the freedom in the world. And it doesn't matter what you're experiencing in your meditation sitting, if you want to be here, then you have freedom. Understanding that, you can have freedom at any moment, whatever you're doing, wherever you are. Not by changing things, except changing your attitude. Instead of wanting to be somewhere else, you just want to be here. It's what I call unconditional mindfulness. We have unconditional loving-kindness, we have mindfulness, but I just combine it to unconditional mindfulness. So you're watching whatever's happening here and be happy to be here, to be content. Contentment is the key to freedom and freedom is what creates peace, depth, joy and deep insight in your meditation. To understand this, I've been... Well, let's uh, tell me you this simile. My monastery in Australia is on top of a hill, just like Abhyagiri Monastery is on top of a hill. The reason why we build monasteries on top of hills is because that's where holy people are supposed to live, <laughs> on top of mountains. Have you ever heard of a holy person living in a swamp? <laughs> Except for Yoda, of course, because <laughs> people tell me Yoda lives in a swamp, but that's Hollywood, that's not real life. So it's our tradition to build monasteries on top of hills. So my monastery is on top of a hill in Western Australia, about 2.2 kilometers, about two miles, say, from the flat to my monastery. For nine years, I'd gone up and down the road to my monastery in a car. One day, it was a beautiful day, I had time, I needed the exercise, I decided to get out of the car at the bottom of the hill and walk up the road. I said to the driver, you go up ahead, I'll see you in a half an hour, an hour's time. So I walked up that hill and I was struck, stunned actually, that I could not recognize my surroundings. The hillside looked so much different when I was walking than anything I'd seen through the window of a car. It was so strange that I stopped. When I stopped, the scenery changed again. Only when I stopped could I see this incredible beauty and detail and richness of color of this hillside, which I thought I knew so well. It was such a staggering experience for me that I thought about it and wanted to find out what was going on. It soon became very clear that when you're looking at images through the window of a speeding car, 
the light does not have time to form a proper image on your retina. Before more light comes up, dislodges the old image, and you have to attend to something new. The colors aren't rich, the detail isn't fully formed, you've just got a washed out, smeared fraction of an image before you have to move to something else. When I was walking, the light had more time to form a proper image. and My mind had more time to play with it and understand it, so I could actually see much more. Things which I'd never noticed over nine years of going up and down a road, maybe three or four times a week, in a car. But of course, when I stopped still, only then did the light have full time to form an exact image and my mind have time to explore and see all the detail. That's why, when I was still, the greens of the grass and the leaves were so richer. Even the colors in the rocks, the boulders, stood out. <coughs> I saw not only deeper color, but far more detail, and the whole thing looked incredibly beautiful. This is the simile of our meditation, how calm and insight work together. If you are living your life so fast, it's like looking through the window of a speeding car. You may live for nine years or ninety years and still see only a fraction of the detail. But moreover, the whole color and richness of life is washed out because you're not spending time life to really show you its beauty. As you go slower, you see more, and you see more richly. Insight comes from stillness, but something else comes at the same time. Not just seeing deeply, but seeing happily as well. These, not just two things, calm and insight was what is always said in Buddhism. But I add a third quality to this from experience, calm, insight and happiness. The three go together. Wherever this calm, there we find happiness and insight, a richness of experience which brings joy to the mind. Exactly what's happening there, again, because I was wondering why these things happen. You, I used a, a metaphor, a paradigm, a matrix, for the mind, looking at the mind having two functions, two aspects. The first part is what I call the reacting mind. The manager, the thinker, the doer, the controller, that which always reacts to whatever you're experiencing. That's the active part of the mind. I call that the doer. The second half of the mind is the passive part which just knows which can hear, which can see, which can feel, which can cognize without reacting at all. It's that part of the mind which just knows. And I've noticed that most of one's mental energy gets wasted on doing things, working, striving, changing, thinking, controlling. So much so, there's very little energy left for knowing, for mindfulness, and if you want to understand the path of stillness, insight and joy, the path of meditation, 
It can be very well explained by calming or even subduing the active part of the mind, the doing, the managing, the thinking, the controlling, by letting go, letting things be, and allowing the energy instead to flow into just the knowing, into mindfulness, unconditional mindfulness. And what I found with my own practice over many, many years, the less I do in my mind, the less I react, the more content I am, I'm happy to be here, the more energy flows into mindfulness and into happiness. Not only do you become still, but the mind brightens up, you can see more deeply and it sees more happily. One of the things which you may notice here is when you go and have a treat, the food always tastes delicious. The first retreat I did over 35 years ago, I think it was, <coughs> at the University of Cambridge, we hired a boarding house, usually for students. Even if you haven't been to the country of England, I think you know, may know by its reputation <laughs> that the food is usually disgusting. <laughs> and when you look at the, the culinary expertise of the various places in England, boarding houses for students are right down the very bottom. In those days we used to have three course meals, stodge, 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 those were the three courses, with hardly any flavour at all. So I was not looking forward to the meals in this retreat. But to my surprise, they were tasty. In fact, they were delicious. And really, I thought that we must have struck lucky and got the best boarding house cook in the whole of England, if not the whole cosmos, because it tasted delicious. It was only later I realized it wasn't the cook, it was my mind. Whatever flavor there was there, and it wasn't much, I must agree, Whatever flavor there was there, my mind was so still it could actually taste everything. My mind was still and receptive, it could enjoy what was there. And you will find if you have a very deep meditation, your mind is very still. You're, whatever you eat, you'll find it will be more tasty than usual. The moral of that story is, if ever you go out for a restaurant with your friends, make sure you meditate for half an hour beforehand to get your money's worth. <laughs> But not only that, it just shows you just how happiness and stillness and insight go together. It's a happy path. And calm leads to powerful mindfulness. Not ordinary mindfulness, I'm sure you've had those experiences. Deep meditation, you go outside and the leaves on a tree are more green than you've ever seen before in your life. Or just a, a twig. It's just full of so much detail and so much beautiful, so much beauty, it captivates you for an hour and you're never exhausted with what you see. These are times of what I call power mindfulness, full of happiness but great depth. And those are the sorts of mind states which you can use to find out <laughs> the deep insights, the powerful enlightening insights of life. 
simply by becoming still. The last simile which I'll give you, again about stillness, about contentment, is a wonderful simile of meditation. You don't ever go on to any next stage of meditation. You only go in. That's why if you go on to something else, we call it excite. When you go in, we call it insight. <laughs> so you know what happens, don't get excited, get insighted. So, the simile is the simile of the thousand-petaled lotus. It's a Vajrayana simile, which I like to use from the different traditions of Buddhism and make use of them in our practical way of meditating. You'll know the famous mantra, Om Mani Padmi Hum, it literally means like we praise or we worship the jewel in the heart of the lotus. What does that mean? Imagine a lotus closed at night time. The outer petals of the lotus are so rough and weather-worn and dirty you can never think that something beautiful lives in its heart, in its middle. But when the light of the sun in the early morning warms the outermost petals of the lotus, it opens up to reveal the layer of petals inside so they too can receive the warmth of the sun and they too in turn can open up to reveal the next layer of petals so they can receive the warmth of the sun and open up as well. Layer after layer opens up because it can receive the warmth of the sun. And as you go deeper and deeper into the lotus, the petals become more beautiful, more fragrant, and more delicate. In this simile, the lotus stands for your body and mind. The sun stands for unconditional mindfulness, which doesn't move. It warms this body and mind and opens it up, level by level, stage by stage, according to its own nature. nature. You don't have to do anything. Just make sure your unconditional mindfulness keeps warming whatever you're experiencing now. And don't ever think that what you're experiencing now is useless or unpromising. Because in the most unpromising outermost petals of a lotus, so dirty, so wrinkled, so hard, lies these beautiful petals, fragrant and profound, inside whatever you are experiencing right in this moment. So your job in meditation is to be still. Allow unconditional mindfulness to warm up whatever it is you're experiencing now. If that mindfulness moves, it's like the sun goes somewhere else. And the layers of petals, bang, 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 they're all closed up very quickly. You've wasted time. Don't do anything or go anywhere. Don't move the mind. Just allow mindfulness to be still and your mind will open up all by itself. And the path of meditation is like that. The more you are still and just watch and allow mindfulness to open up the mind rather than you doing things, you'll find stage after stage of depth and profundity just open up all by itself with you doing nothing at all. It's like when you go on an aircraft. You In the aircraft already, you've got your ticket. You just sit down and enjoy the insight service. <laughs>
those who rush to the front of the plane thinking they're going to get to the destination earlier. <laughs> All you people struggling to get to jhanas or enlightenment first. Or if you just stay at the back of the plane thinking you're being lazy, you get to the destination at the same time anyway. So sit down, shut up and be still. <laughs> so those are some teachings about the way of meditation. Metaphors, ways of looking, which I hope will help. Contentment leads to freedom. You need to open the mind just by being still and letting mindfulness play on it. And there's nothing, whatever you're experiencing now, always know that right in the center of that lie the deepest of meditations. You don't need to change anything or go anywhere. Just be still and the mind opens up like a flower all by itself. Now I'm going to ask for some questions about meditation or other things. But before I ask for questions, I'm going to teach you something which you'll find in one of the Buddhist sutras. It's in the Mahakamavibhanga Sutra of the Nikaya. It's where the Buddha started teaching about karma and rebirth. The reason I'm saying this you'll find out in a few minutes. You know the Buddha taught karma and rebirth. In particular, in this sutra, the Buddha described what you have to do in this life to become wealthy in your next life. And why, what the karmic reason is why you're born poor. The Buddha also taught the karmic reason, what you did in your past life to be reborn ugly in this one. And you may notice when I say this, I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> because once when I was saying this, I looked at someone, I got into big trouble. <laughs> and what is the karmic reason why some people are born beautiful? I don't mind looking at people then, I don't mind. But in particular, the Buddha... <laughs> The Buddha taught what karma you have to do in this life to be reborn intelligent in your next life. And what is the karmic cause of stupidity? And you can check me up on this, this is true. The Buddha said the karmic cause of being a dummy in your next life is not asking questions in this one. <laughs> Having said that, are there any questions? <laughs> If you want to go through college easy in your next life, ask a question. <laughs> so who wants to ask the first question? Way yes. In the back. Yeah, well, way in the back and then way in the front. Right, next. Yeah. A little while ago you said, uh, Calming or subduing is not something you do, it just describes a process. So it is just a way of saying that the um, the doing mind, which is always active, wants to change things, to be able to settle it down is the process of subduing. But you don't subdue by an act of will. It is will which actually creates a restlessness. So we want to do this letting go. This is, I told this just in the, the tea room before I came in here, in the council house, whatever it's called. This is adapted from one of Ajahn Chah's stories. See this cup over here, this is like my, my mind, or say the breath, or whatever you, your, your object is. Now if the, the goal of meditation is getting peace and stillness, imagine I'm holding this cup, and I'm trying to hold it absolutely still. Now, you know, you're trying to hold your mind still in meditation. Now really concentrating, using all of the skill over, th I've been a monk 31 years now, 31 years of monk skill, 
and I still can't do it. It's still moving, it's shaking slightly. This might be your meditation, so you've been trying to hold your mind still for the last, is it four days? Five days, six days, I don't know. And you haven't been able to do it yet. And then one day, a penny drops, as they say, a light bulb goes on in your head, and you realize how to hold this absolutely still. You put it down. <laughs> now it is still, and it's so easy to do. That's how you subdue the shaking of your mind, the moving of the mind. Learning some way is a difficult thing to do, to disengage, just allow things to happen, just to put things down, to put peace between you and whatever object you're experiencing, so you're not struggling and striving. And one day you do that and you find it such an easy thing to do, but it's so hard when you haven't had the guts to let just nature look after your mind. Each one of you is control freaks. You control your life, controlling your body, and in this retreat you try and control your mind. You just get more and more stressed out. There's another way. Put everything down. This is a simile of letting things go, because you know whenever you hold, Whatever you grasp always moves. It always shakes, because that's the nature of muscles. Whatever you grab always moves. It's never stable. Whatever you put down becomes still. Ajahn Chah's simile was that the leaf on a tree always moves because of the wind. But its real nature is to be still. And to be able to get a leaf still, you don't need to hold it still. All you need to do is to stop the wind, to stop the cause of the vibration, which is your controlling. So you all heard about letting things be and letting things go, this is what it is. So just sit down, shut up, and be still. <laughs> it's not that hard. But when you try, it's impossible. Yeah. I say, first of all, does that answer your question, sir, at the back? If I didn't answer the question correctly, please, or adequately, please answer, please tell me. Is that okay for now? Okay. Yes. I was curious um, about a memorization of, of texts. Is that something that you do in the tradition? Yeah, in, we actually, we're changing our traditions. We adapt from time to time. I was talking about the difference between my monastery and even Abhyagiri and Ajahn Chah's monasteries. We're always adapting. And uh, because many Western monks are reasonably well-educated, and nuns as well, we've got many nuns in Australia too, that I've encouraged, like learning Pali and learning the sutras. And it's, if that is uh, in your ability, and you like doing it, it's very wonderful to do so, because you see with your own eyes some amazing teachings. For example, this is one of, you know the Satipatthana Sutta? I don't know how they teach it to you here, to, you know, uh, to be mindful of the body in the body, and that's stupid. <laughs> because the Pali, and it's very clear when you read the suttas in Pali, this is just the way of Pali, it's the idiomatic usage in Pali. You do like dishwashing of dishes. You do um, cycle riding on a bicycle. 
they always have these verbs which also includes the object of the verb. And actually the Pali here you do body contemplation on the body. But when we're translating, we should never translate word for word because the words aren't the unit of experience, the sentence is the main unit. That's the main idea. So good translators will always translate sentence by sentence, never word by word. They have the sentence, what does that mean? And they use a corresponding sentence in their own language. So what it really means is like doing body contemplation, that's all. And so when you actually read this in Pali, all these lights come on and say, why is people doing this silly translation, making it more difficult? It's just body contemplation, feeling contemplation, mind contemplation, those things. And one of the other things which is very, very powerful, people do say that if you get happy in meditation, you get joy in meditation, you get attached to the pleasure of meditation, which is true. But I came across this in the Pasadika Sutta of the Diga Nikaya. It said, if you get attached to the pleasures of meditation, there's four consequences to that. So, this is what happens. And the Buddha said, what happens when you get attached to the pleasure of meditation? He said, stream winning, once returning, non returning, or full enlightenment. <laughs> so, it's actually pretty good to be attached to the pleasure of meditation. <laughs> so, when you actually see those things, you know, in the the teachings and see them repeated again and again and again. Wow! You know, you're getting some great information about what the Buddha taught, which is better than any teacher. So you see it for yourself. So if you're interested in that, learn Pali. It's not that hard. And actually read it in the original, because there's no translation which is perfect. If I translate it, it'll be many errors. Bhikkhu Bodhis has errors. Ajantanissara has errors. But if you read it for yourself, you get much closer. So I'm, I'm really into that. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, you, that's right, it's back enough. Yeah. Okay, of course, I never chose Perth, I was just sent there. (laughs) Not my fault. (laughs) And no one's sent me anywhere since, (laughs) basically. But uh, it's fascinating as you see like the uh, Buddhism in different parts of the world, it's great traveling and actually seeing what's happening in different countries. Now we have, just in Western Australia especially, you know, we have got a very, very strong uh, Sangha there. We've got, in our monastery is 21 monks, and our monastery is very well, well developed. It's more developed than Abhyagiri. We've also got a nun's monastery, because once we've got our, the way we actually run it over there, we've got a city centre in Perth, with one acre, lots of buildings there, where we give our main teachings to our lay community, do all our pastoral work as well. It's, you know, weddings, funerals, Births, because you know, it's part of Buddhism actually to you know, teach from cradle to beyond the grave, because we also do ghosts as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's our city centre. We've got our monastery, which is secluded. So it's basically for monks. And the next thing we built was a nun's monastery. Because we have all this um, 
questions about where are the nuns? And so, instead of arguing about it, do something about it. So we bought 600 acres of beautiful land, 45 minutes from the CBD of Perth, and we've got a thriving nuns monastery there now, which is independent of the monks' monastery. I, it's an hour and a quarter away, I don't get involved at all. That whatever problems they have, it's their problems, they solve it. And that way that they've grown independent, self-sufficient, and they are thriving. Which is great to have that. So we're doing all these little things over, over there. And to, uh, next thing I'm doing is building a meditation center, so I'm really taking a good look about this, this hall over here. One of the things which we have done is, everyone teaches in their own way. I teach like jhana meditation, and that's really very good for the monks and also for the lay community. They're getting into it. And just teaching basic Buddhism, and that's getting very, very popular. But also another interesting thing I'm doing is actually seeing the relationship between Buddhism and politics as well. Because sometimes you get really pissed off about um, other religions having an agenda with the government. And where's the Buddhist voice? And you know, have a responsibility. You know, to actually to the least say, so, you know, what do Buddhism think about the Iraq war, about terrorism? What's the Buddhist response to this? And this Buddhism has got huge resources of wisdom, conflict resolution, which would be wonderful to get that out into the governments. And we have been successful in Western Australia, it's like a federal system and a state system, and our premier is basically a Buddhist. Because um, the minister, I was at one function, the minister of what planning I think she was, was saying to me that every time there's an argument in the cabinet, he shuts everybody up and says, we should be more Buddhist about this. <laughs> and so I'm interested in that area of how like, Buddhism can involve politics. And ever since I've been in the US, I've been telling people that Buddhism is such a great religion, it's the only one of the major religions which is a religion of the people, by the people, for the people. Because <laughs> we've got no pope, we've got no monarch, we've got no person who's standing above everyone telling you what to believe or what to do. So paraphrasing your, you know, your great president Abe Lincoln in his Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address, a religion of the people, by the people, for the people. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why Buddhism is growing. And interesting, I haven't told this to Ajahn Pasno yet, that I was in Bangkok two weeks ago for this fourth World Buddhist Summit, had uh, representatives from many uh, countries. The Swedish representative told me that the Swedish government had done a survey in all of the high schools of that country asking this question of every high school student. If you had to choose a religion, which one would it be? They had to choose one. Sixty percent chose Buddhism in Sweden in the last two or three months ago. And that was an amazing result. Why? I'll leave it to you to, to figure out. But in a Nordic country, with not many uh, immigrants from Asia, 60% said if they had to choose a religion, they'd choose Buddhism. Yes, yeah.
When I present it to the government for tax relief, I always say, it is a religion. <laughs> Context is important. <laughs> Yeah, okay, it's a very common question. Is Buddhism a religion? Most of the time, people's idea of religion is a God-centered uh, spiritual belief or practice. And I like to call Buddhism a religion by thereby changing people's idea of what religion is. And I think that's great to do that, because words are never static. They always will change their meaning according to people's usage. So by saying, yeah, let's call Buddhism a religion, but by so doing, let's define or redefine that meaning. And by so doing, we're actually helping clean up people's idea of what religion is and making it more meaningful. Yeah? Yeah, well sometimes I say that, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord Buddha. <laughs> I'm only cheeky sometimes. <laughs> it's obviously not, and you can tell people that. But you know, you don't need a religion to have a God. But you know, the religion has its principles. Never take religion too seriously, especially Buddhism. Always make it fun. Because when you're making it fun, it's also more attractive and you're actually usually getting deeper meaning. An example of that, you know about three months ago, there was in all the papers this claim that some US soldiers in Guantanamo Bay had flushed down a toilet a copy of the Holy Quran, the Islamic Holy Book. And so just the next day I was giving a talk and somebody in question time asked me, Ajahn Brown, what would you do as a you know, leading Buddhist? In Australia, what would you do if someone flushed down the toilet, say, a copy of the Dhammapada? So without hesitation, I said, if someone flushed a copy of the Dhammapada down the toilet, I would call a plumber. <laughs> so after yes. <laughs> and why did Mr. Bush think of that? It's just too serious. It is a lighten up. <laughs> But the point was that you can flush the whole Tipitaka down the toilet and Buddha statues as well as far as I'm concerned, but you never flush what they represent down the toilet. Please never allow anyone to flush down the peace, the forgiveness, the wisdom, the compassion. Which even I think the Quran is supposed to embody. Why do they allow you know, people to flush that down the toilet? Which they did when they got angry and upset and felt offended. I think one of the reasons religion is getting a bad name is because where it should be the case, religious leaders should be the hardest to offend. You can say whatever you like, you can abuse me or whatever. We'd always, in Christianity, turn the other cheek. In Buddhism, just you know, let it go. As Ajahn Chah used to say, if someone calls you a dog, look at your bottom to see if you've got a tail. <laughs> if you haven't got a tail, you're not a dog. End of story, no problem. <laughs> So of all people, religious leaders should be the hardest to offend. We should have the thickest of skins because we have the least of egos. But unfortunately the opposite is the case in many situations. 
And I think religions are not showing the way in tolerance. So at least as Buddhists, let's show the way and give religion a better name. By saying, whatever you want to do to Buddhism, you can you know, abuse our name, you can burn all our books, whatever you want to do, but we'll still love you and be at peace with you. Always forgive you. Because there's something which is more important than the book itself. Never confuse the container with the contents. So we give religion a better name, and that's better for everybody. Does that sort of answer your question? Sort of? Okay. Wow, there's heaps of questions now. Okay. <laughs> One, and then two, and then three, yeah? Yes? Okay, how does it happen? First of all, you understand why people keep coming back. And a lot of it is because will, choice, because you want to. Now, remember this meditation, where I've been teaching it so far. You are letting go, putting things down. You're stopping the choice, stopping the will. What in Buddhism we call stopping craving. When that gets stopped, if it gets stopped in a small way, for say for a stream winner, basically there's, there's no momentum to take you very far, six or seven lifetimes at most. For an arahat, that will, that choice, that craving has been so subdued, it's almost, actually has been destroyed. There is nothing to propel you further. The seed of rebirth has been destroyed, as it says. To understand this, I've been telling this story recently, because sometimes that you are, many of you are Buddhists, and you all want to become enlightened, but you know what enlightenment is? Are you really sure you want to be? <laughs> sometimes being a Buddhist is like getting on a bus which is going to some destination called enlightenment, but you're not quite sure where that destination is. Because I remember when I was at school in England, as a 14-year-old, I was 15-year-old, I was interested in religion, and I went up to my chaplain, it was a good school, and I had a chaplain, and I asked him, what is God? What does God mean? And he said something like, God is beyond words. It is the, the ineffable. It is the ground of all being, the essence, the one. And that didn't make any sense to me. Can't you give me something more substantial and get my mind around? And he couldn't, so that's one of the reasons I gave up Christianity. Simply because the guy didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> then later on I became a Buddhist. And then I remember asking my first monks, what is this enlightenment, Nibbana? And they said, it's beyond words, the ineffable, <laughs> the ground of all being. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere before. And it was great to go to monks like Ajahn Chah who give you straight answers instead of these esoteric mystical stuff which you know, sounds good but if you analyse it, this is gobbledygook. I usually call it banana nibbana, <laughs> bending it. <laughs> so fortunately there's a very good description of what nibbana is and it will answer your question about the four stages as well. And uh, this is a story and it's easy for anybody to understand 
even kids understand this, but also it helps them understand the path to that attainment. It's the story of the five children playing the wishing game. Have you heard that story before? Five children playing the wishing game goes like this. If you had a wish, what would it be? And the child with the best wish would win the wishing game. So the first child said, if I had a wish, I would wish for a pizza. Family size with all the trimmings. Can you imagine that now? A nice big pizza, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) So that was the first wish. The second child had more time to think and said, if I had a wish, I'd wish for a pizza restaurant. Because then I can get many pizzas whenever I want. And all the other things you can get there as well, maybe some yogurt or some fries or whatever. So the first guy only got one pizza, thought, I'm beaten. The guy with the pizza restaurant must win. So I asked the third child, what would you want? If you had a wish, what would it be? And the third child said, if I had a wish, I'd wish for a billion dollars. With a billion dollars, first of all, I'd buy my own pizza restaurant. My second wish, I'd buy my own video game store. For my third wish, oh no, sorry, this is for, for, first of all, with a billion dollars, I'd buy my own pizza store, then I'd buy my own video game store, then I'd buy my own school. So I could go to the video games, I won't need to go to school because I own it, I can still give myself good grades. <laughs> and then later on, I'd sell the school and buy a college. That way, I could, I'll still have many millions of dollars left because a billion dollars is enough to last you for your whole life. I have plenty there. So the poor child had only got a, a restaurant, so I've lost the billion dollar wish. That's probably going to win. So then they asked the fourth child, if you had a wish, what would it be? There's two children left here. And the fourth child said, if I had a wish, I would wish for three wishes because that's a wish. My first wish, I'll have the pizza restaurant. The second wish, I'll have the billion dollars. And for my third wish, I'll have three more wishes. (laughs) That way, I could go on forever. Beat that. And the first three children thought, that's a genius. However, can you get any better than the infinitive wishes? But there's one child left. The last child won the wishing game. The last child managed to manifest a wish which was clearly superior than the infinity of wishes. She said, if I had a wish, I wish I was so content I never needed any more wishes ever again. I wish I was so content I never needed any more wishes ever again. That's a Buddha describing enlightenment, which surpasses the infinity of wishes. Such contentment, you need no more wishes. What a beautiful description of enlightenment that is, and how it shows the way we desire things. And the infinity of desires is always surpassed by the end of desires, contentment. There's two freedoms in this world, the freedom of desire, where you can desire whatever you want and get it, and the freedom from desire. We don't want anything. 
Which freedom would you like? What do you want in this meditation? Why isn't the meditation peaceful? Want, want, want. So that's the difference between Nibbāna and wanting. Nibbāna is the end of craving, said the Buddha. So now you know what it is. No ground of all being business or stuff like that, but something tangible, which you can understand, and you can, from that definition, you can understand why you're meditating, and how stream winning, once returning, non-returning, arahat actually works. The best description of that is a story from the suttas of the seven shipwrecked sailors, which again, a story by the Buddha, which shows graphically what these stages are. Seven shipwrecked sailors' story goes like this. The seven sailors shipwrecked at sea. The first sailor just goes right down <laughs> and drowns. Some with terrible bad karma. I'm adapting this slightly, but this is basically what it is. <laughs> the second sailor goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. Just the ordinary Joe. Some good karma, some bad karma, up and down in life. The third shipwrecked sailor floats on the surface. They've got enough good karma, they're a good virtuous person, that they usually stay afloat in the difficulties of life. So the third shipwrecked sailor is one who's got good karma. The fourth shipwrecked sailor is a subset of the third. Someone who's good enough karma, they stay afloat long enough to look around and see dry land. That's compared to the stream winner. Enough good karma, you have the insight, you see where the safety is, where Nibbana is. The next shipwrecked sailor, having floated to the surface, seen dry land, is now swimming towards the dry land. That's the once returner. They're on the way. The next uh, shipwrecked sailor, they swam so close to shore, they can actually stand up in the surf. They're wading to shore. They're so close to shore. That's the non-returner, who's so close to enlightenment, it hardly, hardly matters. They're wading to the shore. And the last shipwrecked sailor, they're on the shore, resting, they're safe, which is the enlightened one, the Arahant. That's a Buddhist simile of the shipwrecked sailors, and one of the best to describe those stages of enlightenment. But first of all, you have to be virtuous enough, good enough, be able to look around and see Nibbāna. Then you practice, you swim. And when you get to close, so close to shore, the non-returner, just waiting, it's just easy. And the last one, the arahat, safe. The task is done. Does that make sense, sir? Okay, that was one, there's two over here, yeah? Ah. Now you're asking about, uh, especially physics and quantum physics, uh, is leading closer and closer to Eastern religions, especially Buddhism. Was uh, I interested in physics first and then Buddhism, or Buddhism first and then physics? It was probably Buddhism first and then physics. 
even though I didn't know I was a Buddhist until I read my first book, and like many people, as soon as you open up a book, this is who I am. This is me, this is my path, this is how I think. So, it was just the wanting to find truth. And these days I actually say there's two religions in the world, I use the word religions, two paths. There's the first path is those people who bend the facts to fit their faith. And the second path is those who bend their faith to fit the facts. And I'm not saying any religion, because that goes, against, goes across all religions, even Buddhism. There are some Buddhists who bend the facts to fit their faith, their beliefs. And there are some scientists who do that as well. They bend the facts to fit their understanding of the truth. So much so that I did get um, disillusioned with science at Cambridge. And to understand why, there was a famous saying going around the labs at that time, the eminence of a great scientist is measured by the length of time they obstruct progress in their field. <laughs> you can understand, it's the dogmatism. And that was in science. That's in religion as well. That's in meditation teachings as well. So we have to be that courageous to be able to jettison anything. The most hallowed of truths if it doesn't fit the facts of our experience. So that's why we have to be just so courageous and rebellious as spiritual seekers on the path. And I always found that Buddhism fat that better than anything else. So often I'd read in the suttas that you know, sometimes people said, even Venal Sariputta, the Buddhist closest associates, once said, I don't believe what you said. The Buddha said, great. Why don't you believe? Because I haven't experienced it yet. That's the sort of mark we like. So the last thing we want is yes disciples. Yes men and yes women. Say, so, oh marvellous Ajahn Brahm, marvellous Ajahn Pasana, marvellous, you know, whoever's your teacher here. Question them, challenge them. Where everybody thinks the same, no one thinks at all. Which is a great saying. So this is what makes Buddhism really nice, because you, you can argue with anybody. <laughs> it's good fun. Does that answer your question? Okay. It was th number three? Yeah. Sorry, it's just keeping it simple. It's not just getting rid of pleasures, it's just keeping simplicity. Because through simplicity, this is why we have brown robes. Has anyone told you why we have brown robes? Because we don't have to wash them so often, that's all. <laughs> But even this morning, I don't think Ajahn Pasno would mind me telling you, he spilled coffee on his robe, and we just joked about it, it's great, because spilled coffee on one of your white clothes, you have to wash it straight away, he's still wearing it, same as me. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologise, sorry. <laughs> it's the same, when you have a bed, you have to sort of get around, it's harder to clean. I remember just, it is true. Having few possessions, it's easier to travel. So just its simplicity, it just makes a lot of sense. And just look at our environment. It's how much we're using. You need to use all of that. You can only be in one room at a time. So you know, just make that your living room, your bedroom, your eating room. It's much, much easier. And the reason why we're celibate, I mean, 
What's the biggest problem of our world today, ecologically? It's overpopulation. And at least Ajahn Paso and I, we're doing our part to solve the problem. (laughs) Put it there. So we're not doing this to have a hard time, because look, you know, you see we mess around with fun monks. <laughs> we, we have a lot of fun as monks. We are good time monks. <laughs> it's a strange thing that you, sometimes people think when you have many, many things, you have a lot of happiness. But usually simplicity is much nicer. You have more happiness that way. Especially in families. It's, one of the problems with our modern world, we have such big houses, we each have our own room. In the old days, we'd have to share rooms. I had to sleep with my brother in a room because of a small place we lived in. And we're always together in this small apartment in London. That's what made us a family. It's great when we have to sort of you know, be in a small space together. So don't ever, if you have a family, specifically get a very small house. You can maybe be able to afford a big one, but don't buy one. Buy a small one, so the whole family are very cramped and together. So you can have a family and not just a group of so many people in their separate little rooms. Interesting thing, yeah. Okay, yes? Yeah. was very excited about it because it was sort of like simple. You know, you could find one thing that generated all these manifestations. Sure. And then I got a little bit turned off as it got more and more popular with quantum mechanics and all these books were written. Because now they're, the particles are expanding. This, that, and was that part of it to you? That instead of like staying simple and, and getting yeah. Well, he's asking again. Thank you for asking the question, because I actually did, after I answered that gentleman's question, I realized after I went to the next question, I didn't answer it fully. If ever I don't answer a question fully, please come back and say, there's a nice half answer, but not the full answer. So it is true that one of the things which I got from quantum physics, and also from general relativity, is just how easy it was to have a paradigm of the world which was just inadequate. And so as soon as you got to quantum physics, you, know, you had to change the way you looked at the world. Radically. Everything solid was not solid anymore. Just the reality was just this uh, <coughs> what is spread of potentialities. And the quantum world is weird and wacky, but that's the reality. And so you had to accept that. Every time you make an observation, then you get an image of the world, which is not the way it really is, it's just the way it seems. So you have to go much deeper. The problem even with life, we think we know the way things are. That's one of the common phrases in Buddhism, to see things the way they are. But most people do not only see the way things seem, not the way things are at all. And the point is that when the mind gets involved, it creates reality in a fundamental sense. And every physicist who actually understands their equations, rather than just, sometimes physicists and mathematicians just get used to it. 
You can work out all those equations, but you don't ever stand back to truly understand what they mean. So a few times in the lectures, I stood back and, wow, I couldn't go any further with the argument, because it was just too, too strong, the implications. And so when it came to quantum theory, you realize that every time you measure something, you create the universe. So that's why when any Christian asks me as a Buddhist, well, we say that God created the universe. In Buddhism, who created the universe? So you did. Now don't be done in a small way, in a fundamental way. You are the creator of your universe. In a bigger way than you can ever imagine. Every time that you, your mind observes something, or rather measures, because that's an observation, is a measurement, you create the universe. That's why I like also, when I learned Pali, the word for mind is mano. Mano is the word, Pali word for mind, mano. The word for measuring is the verb which is derived from mano, maneti, which actually literally means to mind it, to actually to exert, it's a function of the mind, is to measure. And somehow in Pali, those two words got together. What the mind does is measure, and the word actually says that. You've got the apamana states. Remember, many of you may know that the, the immeasurable attainments, basically the Brahma Viharas. Mana comes from mano. And what that really means there is that the mind is what measures. So you stop measuring, there's no mind left. You don't collapse this world into observations, into girls and boys, into sort of Theravada Mahayana, into sort of peace and restlessness in the quantum physics way, sort of when the Schrodinger wave equation isn't collapsed, it's almost, it's emptiness, it's voidness. It's where earth, air, fire and water, no footing find. You could say that's where the Schrodinger wave equation is not collapsed. Fascinating. As a Buddhist and a theoretical physicist, because I know both sides of that, I understand exactly what I'm meaning. So yes, it's, it's profound and great. But in particular, it shows that the mind is really important. I, one of the stories in my book is a fascinating story, again, easy for people to understand about the nature of the mind. Came from an experience of my old college friend. Uh, he got married, had kids. When his daughter was in grade one of primary school, the teacher asked everyone this question. What is the biggest thing in the world? One little girl put her hand up and said, my daddy. <laughs> Another boy put his hand up and said, an elephant, because he'd been to the zoo. Another kid put their hand up and said, a mountain. It's getting better. The daughter of my friend, only five years of age, said, my eye is the biggest thing in the whole world. And everyone thought, what? What do you mean? And the teacher asked, what do you mean your eye is the biggest thing in the whole world? And this five-year-old genius philosopher said, well, my eye can see her daddy, my eye can see a mountain, an elephant, and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the whole world. <laughs> and brilliant. But she wasn't quite right. Because your mind can see everything that your eye can see. It can imagine things you'll never see in the real world. It can hear, it can smell, taste and touch. It can imagine feelings which you can't feel with your real body. 
They can also think and know its own mental field. Things like anger, happiness, grief. In fact, everything that can be known can fit into your mind. So isn't the mind the biggest thing in the whole world? Beautiful logic. You try and challenge that logic. So, it's not that the mind lives in your body, or in your brain, or in the world. The world lives in your mind. The whole universe, everything, can all fit in. That's where it belongs. First verse of the Dharmapada, the mind is the forerunner of all things, the chief. I would translate that as the biggest. So now you know what the mind is, that's why you can create the world. Or you can not create it. When you stop creating the world, that's Nibbana. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.